is, what is your greatest need right now? And I'm going to address this more specifically. If you are a Christian, what is your greatest need right now? Because if you're not, obviously, from our understanding, your greatest need is to receive that offer of salvation in Christ. But as a Christian, all right, what do we need right now? I want you to think through that. Because one of the things you, you learn if you do any kind of counseling, or even in the, the medical profession, from what I understand, is that very often when people come to you, they come with what's called a presenting need, but their real need may be something deeper or might be something quite different. And uh, I know my sister, uh, earlier this year, she went to the doctor because she was having pain in her back. And uh, so that was the presenting problem. But the real problem was a cancerous tumor that had to be dealt with instead. And thankfully, she's doing very well, so I appreciate your prayers. But that's what I'm getting at, is that sometimes what we think is our main problem, if we knew the broader situation and could see things more deeply, we would understand that the presenting problem is only a symptom of the deeper real problem. So with that in mind, I'm going to make this statement based upon our passage in Ephesians chapter 3. If you've got that in your uh, outline, sermon notes, then you can look at that. Otherwise, it's in the scripture. I'll also have part of it on the screen here as well. I'm going to make a statement that's going to kind of guide this whole sermon. And that is this, that your greatest need is in the realm of your inner person, not your outward circumstances. Your greatest need is in the realm of your inner person, not your outer person. So we're going to develop that through this text. I'm going to try and show you that this isn't just my idea. This is the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul uh, that's bringing this truth out. And then we're going to say, okay, if that's true, then what do we do about it? How do we become strengthened in this inner man? Well, the passage uh, Christy read is at a very key point in the book of Ephesians. I, I love this passage. It's, it's too much to, to really bring in all, all the all the uh, meaning and wonder of this in one sermon. That that I came in the main in Madison on Monday morning. I read, wrote the sermon out completely and then by Tuesday afternoon I said no. <laughs> I had to read the whole thing because there's more here. There's, there's, there's so much here to speak to our needs. So before we begin though, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that 2,000 years ago you through your spirit inspired this man to write these words down for those first Christians in Ephesus, as well as for us. Thank you for preserving them for us. And now would you illumine them in our minds? Would you help me to say what is right and true according to your word? And would you help each one of us to know what you're saying to us through it? Right now, God, we give you our attention, but we also give you our hearts. We need to ask you to direct our hearts by the truth of your word. Thank you, Father. Amen. So your greatest need is in the realm of your inner person. Now, before we dive into this passage, let's know where it's at. The book of Ephesians is almost like two books, or two, two parts of one book. And uh, in the first three chapters, it's all about what God has done for you. That if you are in Christ, he has chosen you and with this eternal, steadfast love, which is part of this broad picture that he has, and this, this plan of God, this purpose of God, 
is to unite all things in heaven and earth in, in Jesus Christ. And the church, Jews and Gentiles, male and female, white and black, all the different races and nationalities, together, becoming and finding their unity in Jesus Christ, we're, we saw the last few weeks, that is like the first sign, the proof of concept, as it were, of what is ahead, the eternal unity of all things in Christ. Now, Paul is saying, by nature, because of our sin, we deserve God's wrath. And yet this is what we've received. Now in chapter 4 and 5 and 6, then he's going to show us how to live. He starts chapter 4. I urge you then, in light of all this, to live a life worthy. And here, right before he does that, though, we have a witness prayer. Because Paul knows something that we may not or may not remember. That he can't just tell us what to do. There has to be this work of God within us to change ourselves, so that we desire to understand. So before he comes to all those chapters, uh, he, he utters his prayer to them, and through the Holy Spirit to us also. And he starts, for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and earth derives his name. And I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power, through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. So that Christ may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. You know, the scriptures teach again and again the absolute priority of our inner life over our outward life. And what, is, what does it mean by the inner life? Well, in one word, you could just say the heart. That we'll talk about that in a few minutes or in a few verses here. You have to remember, though, that in biblical terminology, the heart is not the seat of emotions like it is normally what we think in our culture. Rather, it's the heart is a place of your inner values and thoughts, what you think about life, what you value in life, what you're concerned about, what you love, treasure, and cherish, and therefore, out of that, what you do. So he's saying, I want you to be strengthened in that inner person. And uh, the outer person, in contrast, are those things that are visible, at least in some ways. Your status, your wealth, um, your appearance, your reputation, your possessions, your achievements, your health. All these things in some combination, these are the things we usually focus on and worry about and work towards and pray about. And what Paul is saying here, through his example and his words, that this is not your most important need. There's something far deeper. There's a presenting problem, but there's a deeper issue to that. Now, that's what we see here in this text. Remember, Paul is in prison as he's writing this. He is in a Roman jail. He is dependent on for his very food on what his friends are able to, to scrounge up and deliver to him because Romans can't do that. His very life is hanging in the balance. He knows it's going to go before the emperor someday, and, and it will either be free or executed. These are kind of weird circumstances. And he's writing to people who are suffering their own trials because many of the people in Ephesus, kind of in Asia, Asia, Asia Minor, or we call modern day Turkey, they're suffering persecution. They're suffering problems. They're also concerned about Paul. Do you see one word, though, in this prayer about any of those circumstances? No, instead, it's all about what's happening inside of him. So, this inner man 
he has learned to understand the distinction between those two things. In fact, he kind of built upon this in another passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says here, we are hard pressed on every side, um, but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. And then he goes on to say, we do not lose heart. Though inwardly we are wasted away, outwardly we are being renewed day by day. Why? Because for our light and momentary troubles, if you know Paul's life, you kind of smile at that. He had problems, big troubles. For our life and momentary troubles are achieving for us in eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So Paul is saying there's this absolute priority of the inner person over the over the outer person. And of course, you can learn that from Jesus. Jesus begins his ministry with the most famous, important sermon in the history of mankind, the Sermon on the Mount. He gives eight beatitudes, and they're all related to this inner man. Blessed is the merciful, blessed is the peacemaker, blessed is the humble. And then later on, the people who received his, his sharpest condemnation were the Pharisees. And, and at one point, he compares them and says, You guys are like whitewashed tombs. And what's that? Well, you know, in Jesus' time and culture, you had to be very careful that you didn't actually bump into a grave, or because if you did, then you would serve only at Caesar's food chapel. And, uh, and so what they would do is they would, whenever there was a grave or a tomb, they would whitewash it with lime, so it became very pure and white, very visible. And Jesus said, you, you Pharisees are just like that. You look good on the outside. You look pure. But in the inside, there is rock. And you look dead. So he... Paul learned that there is a difference between this outer man and what happens inwardly. And what he's saying is that we need strength, that we need power in our inner person for what? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Okay, might have a couple questions here, right? Alright, he's writing to Christians. Don't we already have Christ in our hearts? That's the first question. And the answer is, well, yes and no. See, in the Greek language that Paul was using, there were two words he could have chose from to describe being in somebody. One is just a word saying, you know, your, your inability might be in a movie theater or a mall, maybe a hotel tonight. And the other word is for a person coming home and being settled in a home, and making a home just where they want to be. And of course, that's the word that Paul is using here. That's the word he's using here. So, this is a prayer that God is fully at home within us. You see, every Christian has Jesus living in their heart. But for some, yeah, I can always master sweet, and for some of us, we sleep on the couch, right? This is a prayer that we let him have the keys of the master suite, that he's the master, not the guest. You know, there's a wonderful little book that explores this same idea, this little book right here. You could probably read this in 45 minutes. And I've actually bought about 40 copies of this. They're going to be out there. I encourage you to just pick one up, read it through, maybe read it with your spouse if you're married. And uh, just kind of work through that and think through that. And maybe read one part each day and meditate upon 
as we go through what it would be like if Christ kind of worked with us, takes possession, or not possession, ownership and leadership in each of the rooms. Part of you might want to, many of you might want to go through. So there's actually a Bible study, a six-week Bible study, on this same topic based upon this book. It goes a little bit deeper with other passages as well. And the reason I kind of put this out here before us, and there are many of these in the back as well, is uh, because one of the things we're going to see is that it's in community with each other, uh, that we're around God's word, that we really grow in understanding this love of Christ. All right. So, first question was that. Why does Christ need to dwell in our heart? And the second question is this way. Why do we need strength? Why do we need inner powers that Christ would dwell in our heart? And when I'm reading that, that doesn't seem the right concept. I can see strength to do great things, but this is strength to let someone be fully at home. And I can think of two reasons. First, because like I said, our default position is that we want Christ not to be the master of our home, but maybe a visitor or someone who just comes and stays for a little while. But we want him around, right? Especially when there's problems. Um, even if he spends the night, we could give him the couch. And so that's our default position. We need power because this, this transformation going upon us. Second, it takes spiritual strength to have spiritual understanding. And that's really the heart of what he's getting at here is that we do not have enough spiritual understanding. We do not have enough spiritual eyesight. And it's praying for the spiritual power that brings this about. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, Paul goes on here a little bit. And this is not so much an additional prayer that I believe is kind of a building upon what he said. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, and so you you, you have been under, you've been brought into the family of God by the love of Christ. You've been rooted and established in that. You don't need more love, right? It's already there. But I pray that you have power together with all God's holy people. I want you to have power to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of Paul's praise so that you and I will have strength to understand together with all the saints the breadth and height and depth and length of this love. Now, now, what does he mean by all these stations you mentioned? Well, probably he's using this just as an all encompassing rhetoric to talk about how vast and full this love is. But maybe in our own life, though, it might help to understand how we can kind of conceptualize it. The depth, I refer to the depth of his condescension, that he came to, to save me, that he left heaven to, to become like us, that he even went to the cross, to the grave. The breadth of his love, covering all of my sins, and offering his, his offer of the gospel of love to all the world. The heights being raised up with Christ in the heavenly places, and the length, the length of time, the eternity of his never ends. It makes us a new creation, a new creature. I said, I don't know if that's exactly what was on Paul's mind, but I think it's a good way to think through and meditate what it would mean for me to get this life. And then, and then Paul resorts to a bit of paradise here, right? I want you to know this love that goes beyond knowledge, which passes knowledge. 
Now, how can we have something that goes that long? Well, I guess it's an analogy before, but think of the Pacific Ocean. How many of you have been to the Pacific? You've been to the Pacific. How many swims? How many snorkels? All right, good. So, I've been there, I think, three times in the two trips we, we actually went snorkeling. I love snorkeling. It's like my favorite thing to do on a vacation. You put your head underwater and it's a whole new world, right? And you realize that all the things you see up here aren't going to become a reality at all. There's a lot more going on and it's very beautiful. So Amy and I, you know, we went snorkeling off a couple of beaches uh, two or three times. And, uh, and you know, I've been to the Pacific, I've seen documentaries, I've seen it on a map. I know a lot more about the Pacific Ocean now than I did as maybe when I was 19. And I've never even been there. But you know, the Pacific Ocean is really beautiful. It covers half the globe, right? I was off. I covered a few hundred feet on a couple beaches. I mean, where's the living? Probably the most I ever went down swimming was about 10 feet, someplace you could see another 40 or 50 feet. Okay, that's great. It's better than what I had before. But you know how deep it is. Do you know how deep the Pacific is? You could take, you could take Mount Everest and cut it off at its base, flip it upside down, and you could put it in trenches in the Pacific Ocean and still have several thousand feet of water above you. It's really big. So here's my point. I know more than I used to. There are so many more that I don't. We know the love of Christ. We know it here in His Word. We know it in our experience, but we don't really know it. Otherwise, Paul would be praising us, right? So here's a question before we go on. Here's a question I'd like you to ask your own inner person How well do you know the love of Christ Jesus? How well do you now before you answer that, maybe think through, as I was trying to do, when I was writing this, how often you are anxious or worried, how often you fall into sins, large or small, how deeply you have a genuine love for others, including the lost, how often you dwell in the inner joy and peace that flows out into giving others grace, because these are what is changed if we really know the love of would sin have any hold on us if we really got what Christ endured on the cross out of love for you? Could I have any anxiety about my future if I really believed the words of the scriptures that the love of Christ is able to make all things work together for my good, even the things that are painful, even the things that are frustrating? Could we even keep ourselves from sharing his love with others if we understood his death and the wonder of his love? I think we get it up here, but it's not really taking hold. It's not fully. A pastor wrote this. Many years ago, my first pastor, I met with a teenage girl in our congregation. She was about 16 at the time and was discouraged and becoming depressed. I tried to encourage her, but there was a revelatory moment when she said, Yes, I know Jesus loves me. He saved me. He's going to take me to heaven. But what good is that when no boy at school will even look at me? And this pastor writes, she said she knew all these truths about being a Christian, but they were no comfort to her. 
The invention or lack thereof of the pupiloid school was far more consulting, energizing, and foundational to her joy and self-worth than the love of her family. Of course, this is a perfectly normal response for a teenage girl, but it's revealing of how all of our hearts work. Jonathan Edwards would say that she had the opinion of Christ's lover, but she didn't really know it. Christ's love was magic. Now, if you're like me, maybe when you hear that with the attention or the lack thereof of a cute boy at school was far more consoling, energizing, and foundational for her joy and self-worth and the love of Christ, it's like, okay, that's not me. I don't need the love of some uh, cute boy at high school. But when I fill in the blanks, what is more foundational for my, for my joy and my self Because in the day-to-day -day life, I'm not thinking about it. I think about the things I'm worried about or striving for. And that's what Paul's talking about. Not just that we would answer the question on the test correctly, not that we could verbalize it correctly and say the right doctrine, but that in the day-to-day -day of our life, we're living in the knowledge of that love. And to do this, we need spiritual discernment, spiritual eyesight as well. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York City, and he related the story that helped bring out the great difference between intellectual knowing and spiritual knowing. He was sitting with a couple other men examining uh, candidates for ministry, so they're seeking ordination in the Presbyterian Church, and he related that these candidates, as they shared their testimony, kept repeating the same idea, man after man. They had grown up in the church, but they never heard the gospel until some incident as an adult caused them to really get it. And finally, the head examiner stopped. <laughs> And he related his own story. And uh, because he wanted to make a point. This man had gotten saved to become a real Christian after graduating from the seminary. So he told how afterwards he was talking to a seminary administrator and kind of complained that he had never heard the gospel before, despite all his time in the classroom. In fact, he says he'd taken a whole class on Martin Luther and he was disappointed that Luther never, never preached the gospel. At this, the seminary administrator began to push back, right? What do you mean Luther never preached the gospel? Well, yes, well, I took a whole class on, on Luther. In fact, I read his whole commentary in the book of Galatians, and I never saw it there. I even wrote a long paper on that commentary and got an A+. Plus. Now, if you know anything about the history of the Reformation, Luther preached the gospel of grace, that we are saved not by our work, but place our trust God's point of sacrifice in Jesus Christ more ferociously and clearly and passionately than almost anyone else in history. And his study of and commentary about Galatians was where it all began. So the administrator suggested that this man go back and read that commentary again and read his own paper again. And after he did, this, this person said, you know what? We thought that changed. In fact, even in his paper, he wrote the truth of the gospel because he intellectually understood Luther's point, but he didn't get it. He did not see that the gospel was good news for him, that he could be saved by grace. And the reason the man related this in all this, in this situation was this, to make the point 
So all these candidates could likely have heard the gospel before, but until they had spiritual understanding, they only knew it as words. Listen, I've sat by hands here with paper and pencil right now. As you write down what you understood about the love of Christ, most of us call it here we get it there. But we don't really know it all. Because if we did, we would be full of joy instead of worry, of gratitude instead of anxiety, purity of love instead of sin and self condemnation. Now, that's what Paul wants us to be full of understanding grace. Let me digression here. Because I'm heaven. I can do some prophecy. You can do some prophecy. There's more going on with this, of course. Paul, Paul says, I want you to be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that all the fullness that God gives? And the answer is no. Because the Greek language and the context of the book argue against that. They tell you instead that what Paul is saying is that he is praying. Now listen to this. That you and I are filled with all that God is. All that God is in, in difference to us, you just put it there, thank you. All that God is in, in, in contrast to us, full of love and wisdom and power and righteousness and holiness. He says, that is what is going to fill you. That is what we are in the process of. I am. Uh, Trying to think of some way to illustrate this. Maybe this is the best. I like coffee mugs. And I especially like handmade coffee mugs. So this one's cool. My wife gave me this one. And it's nice on a cold day because you put your hand in there and kind of warm your hand up. Uh, this one, this one's from my sister. And it's very cool. They give you these raw hand and you have a little signature on the bottom. Uh, I, this one was lost to me for like four months. And the time I showed up, I was very happy. And during that time, Nate and Abby bought me another handmade mug to replace that. So that's from them. And then this one, Andy and I, I just bought this a couple weeks ago. We were at the Penrod Art Festival. And there was this girl, actually, she was from Mount Franklin College. And she was an artist working in ceramics. And she had all kinds of mugs and different vessels. And I chose one that really struck my eye. Now, now here's the point all of these are beautiful. All of these are handmade. I love each one of them. But each one is designed for one thing besides its beauty. And that is to be a beautiful way that coffee is held. You see, this mug is not just designed to hold air. It's designed to be filled with something else that I love. The coffee. You and I are not just designed to be filled with our own small, weak desires and concerns. We are designed to be filled, filled with the very image of God, with God Himself. And what Paul is saying is that the way that this happens is that we're strengthened in the inner man when we come to know this love. All right. So let's, let's, let's have a response to this then. If our inner person is absolutely primary, and that we're strengthened in that to know the love of Christ that we're filled with. All right, so what do we do? How do we strengthen our inner person? Well, before we can answer this question, I think we need to have a 30-second digression on what I call the active passage uh, dynamic of the spiritual life. And what I mean by that is just a fancy way of saying this. Think of your Christian life and spiritual growth. How much of it is what we do and strive for and work for, and how much is what God does and his way brings us to? And the answer is that spiritual growth is both active and passive. 
Because the power of change only comes from God, and then we can speak it and prepare for it. Yeah, we can think of a lot of analogies that make sense to us in this. The farmer, the farmer has no power to make the crop grow. He has no control over the germination of the seed and the process of growth. He doesn't have control over the weather and the rain to fall. And yet, what does he do? He still goes out and plants or prepares the fields. He breaks it up and plows it. He puts the nutrients in the ground. He cultivates that. And at the right time, he plants the seed. And that's why. Because he knows that even though he doesn't have the power to make that happen, that God, he feels, is faithful to create that power within the seed and sustain it. Or maybe another analogy. Think of another illustration. In regard to the spiritual life, Are we like, is our life like a rowboat, or a lifeboat here, rather? In other words, we're saved from the shipwreck, and now we're just waiting for the rapture, the helicopter rapture to kind of take us away, right? Until then, we're just kind of chilling. Or, are we designed, is the spiritual life designed to be like a rowboat? The rowboat's getting somewhere, but it's all through our own power. And we're going to wear out pretty soon, right? Or are we like a sailboat? This is a boat that has no power on its own. And yet it is able to glide through the water of the past as far as that is capable and growing life. Because it has the ability to receive a power that is not its own. And that's the dynamic of the spiritual life Paul says. I want you to be filled with all this knowledge of God's love, all that God is, but yet it's not the same. The same rowboat, if they had taken the time and the effort to, to put up the sails and to adjust them the right way, wouldn't go anywhere either. So that is the question for us. Do I want to be more like the rowboat or the sailboat? Alright, so that's the dynamic here. So the question in that light, then, really becomes this, right? Okay, how do I set my sins? What does that actually look like in the spiritual realm? I'm going to say three things. I'm going to say three things. First, inquiry. Seek this kind of inner spiritual growth. Do all that you can to, to remind yourself and to remain in this, this love of Christ in your, in your heart and mind so that when you're looking at life, when you're looking at other people, when you're looking at the situations, you're looking at them through the spiritual eyesight and see this kind of love as well. Now, what does that look like? Well, it's going to be a little different for each one of us. Might mean playing worship music on our way to work, spending more time in, in this word, coming together here, being reminded of that, of that in the first part of the week. Uh, one thing would be, would be key, though, obviously, is the prayer. So the whole context is a prayer. Paul says, I am praying that you are strengthening your faith. Now, if that's true, he, he seems to be implying that without that prayer that God answers, that we don't have that kind of prayer. So we seek it through all these ways, but especially pray for it. The question I began to ask myself when I first entered into this passage, how often do I pray for this? I pray that God solve my Am I praying that God would strengthen me in the inner person so I would know this love and out of that would change? Am I praying that for my children? 
I pray that for the people I love, people in the church. But that was a very challenging, convicting question. It might be for all of us, right? Second, so first thing is, second, uh, don't be a spiritual lone ranger. <laughs> don't be a spiritual lone ranger. Nate talked about this last week. He does not text last week talked about it. And guess what? Next week, we'll <laughs> talk about it again. Why? Because this is something that God wants us to do together. Now, I skipped over because I kind of wanted to say it here for the end. Rather than look at God, give your life. 
Step to go in our service with the words of 